Radio Mano Papachango. Chris here in Portland, Oregon. I'm at the float conference uh, where in uh, about two hours I'm going to be giving, well, they, they call it a keynote presentation, but it's, as far as I know, it's just going to be Duncan Trussell and me on stage bullshitting. So I don't know. It's a presentation. If that counts as a presentation, I guess that's we're going to be given a fucking presentation. Um, but anyway, it's going to be a live uh, recording of the Duncan Trussell Family Hour. I'm a proud member of the Duncan Trussell Family, apparently. Not sure whether I'm a... I think I'm probably like a crazy uncle or something like that. I'm not sure. I'll have to ask Duncan where I fit into the uh, Duncan Trussell Family configuration. But in any case, or oh, maybe I'm getting it wrong. It's the Duncan Trussell Family Hour. It's not the Duncan Trussell family hour. Ah, okay. In any case, that's where I am. That's what I'm going to be doing. Uh, I just went and registered, got my tote bag, had some free coffee. I'm a little wired. Sorry about that. Um, Anyway, I did uh, a podcast with Kyle Tierman a couple of weeks ago, and I think I forgot to mention it on here. But it was an interesting podcast. We were at my place in Topanga. We were super relaxed. I think we'd had a couple of beers. We'd been hanging out all day. I think we'd gone on a hike or a bike ride or something. And we were back at the house. And uh, he was like, hey, man, you know, can we do a podcast, you know, for my show before you leave? And yeah, whatever. Sure. Why not? So we turned on the mics and we were having a very good conversation for an hour or so. And then uh, Kyle looked at me and he said, what do you say we take a break and get stoned and then come back and finish? <laughs> and so, all right, so we turned off the mics and we went and smoked a joint and then we went back and continued the podcast. But as I remember, as soon as we turned the mics on, we just started giggling like a couple of idiots. Uh, I don't know whether he edited that out or not, but uh, I think we went on for another hour or so before we just sort of uh stumbled into an end but in any case uh some people have heard that and they wrote to me and they're like hey why didn't you promote this on your own podcast that was really funny and anyway so i'm now promoting it uh i guess i forgot before but go to kyle tierman let's see i will uh i i'm googling this as as you listen that's how's that for um the kyle tierman show that's what it is okay and the the address is kyle dot surf slash podcast and uh you'll see i'm on episode 53 it's called float tanks and the aquatic ape theory with dr chris ryan um and then 54 He's there with Amy Baldwin, a sex researcher who I 
had the pleasure of uh, having a conversation with a couple weeks ago in Santa Cruz. That episode's coming soon. And you'll see in that episode photo, Kyle is wearing his Civilized to Death shirt. And then episode 55 is the City Surf Project with Johnny Irwin, who uh, teach underserved youth from low-income communities in San Francisco valuable life skills through the sport of surfing. So anyway, check out Kyle's podcast. It's great. He's a really cool guy. Uh, and uh, you've heard him and his brother on this podcast, if you're a regular listener. So uh, what else? This episode is with Stanley Krippner, I, my great dear friend, mentor, Uncle Stanley. Um, I saw him just uh, two weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago in Oakland when I was setting out on this trip. He uh, was staying in Oakland, I think he was giving a presentation or something. So he was in a hotel downtown and I went and uh, sat with him, had breakfast and recorded a podcast with him. Always when I'm anywhere near Stanley, I try to get get to him and spend some time with him. The guy's 84 years old. He's going to be 85 this, uh, I think, September or October. I think it's October is his birthday. And... Um, He's going strong. I mean, he's he's definitely, you know, uh, looks like a question mark when he sits down. But he uh, he gets up and goes, and intellectually, he's as sharp as ever. He's just so full of knowledge and humor and wisdom and life. The guy he's a he's a juicy, wonderful guy. So I'm really happy to be able to bring you this episode with Stanley. There have been I don't know how many now. Uh, Stanley and I remember we recorded one in a car driving down the I-5, taking him to go uh, appear on the Joe Rogan show. And Stanley and I recorded a podcast in the car. And I did one with Stanley and Wim Hof together, along with Sam Lawrence. Also, great podcast. If you're looking for more podcasts to listen to, check out Grow Big Always, uh, hosted by Sam Lawrence. He has really good interesting guests and he's uh he's very good at bringing out the best of them anyway yeah there have been lots of episodes with stanley so if you enjoy this look in the archives and you'll find a lot more uh where this came from uh what else can i tell you uh after this this uh conference is over i'm gonna head out to see the eclipse somewhere in central Oregon. It seems like it's going to be a bit of a shit show with all the tourists coming in and festivals and all this stuff. But um, I'm going to try to find some back roads where other people aren't going and um, just find a spot to hang out and watch this happen because with the van I can just be wherever I want it's fantastic so that's what I'm going to do and then I'm going to go to Burning Man never before been uh, it's going to be very interesting the universe has come together uh, as I mentioned in previous episodes people have uh, contacted me to, to hook me up with tickets and uh, vehicle passes and uh, people come out of the woodwork for example a guy named Tom um, heard me mention in the past ep uh, last episode that I was looking for some tickets and information and all that. And I got a, an email saying, hey, if you're still looking for a ticket, call me. And I called him and it turns out he's in Bend. And then we stopped and hung out with uh, Tom and 
his lovely wife, Judy, and uh, wow, just again, wonderful, wonderful people. Had a great time with him. We're up till 1.30 in the morning. Uh, looks like maybe go hang out with him again. Um, trying to arrange to, to get together again uh, this week. So anyway, just thank you, all you wonderful people who listen to this podcast. And, uh, and you're so cool. I, I'm extrapolating, and I know it's not a scientific process here, but if I've met, I don't know, I've probably met 100 people through the podcast so far, and all 100 of them have been really, really wonderful people that I'm truly grateful to have met, uh, I have to assume that if there are 100,000 people downloading these episodes, all 100,000 of you are fucking cool. Awesome. I mean, you know, a hundred out of a hundred, that's a pretty strong sample. So it'd be, it would be so, I mean, I'm, the more I think about this, the more of you that I get to meet, uh, which is really what this van trip was about to a large extent to get out and try to meet some people who listen to this strange production. Uh, the more of you I meet, the more I want to figure out a way to help you meet each other. Because there's definitely uh, a community of really high-quality, decent people out there who are tuned into this. So that includes you. Thank you so much for your support, however it manifests. Um, Mom tells me to mention the T-shirts because every time I forget to mention them, the sales start to slump and then I mention them and suddenly there's a big surge in t-shirts and that keeps mom very busy. She actually, I got her, uh, an account with, uh, whatever it's called postoffice.com or the, whatever it is that other podcasts are advertising all the time. And, uh, so she's got a scale and stuff where she can print things out herself, but she still, she likes going to the post office and she heard her back a couple of weeks ago and so I took a, a load of shirts to the post office, and this is in Los Angeles, okay? This isn't a country post office. And the ladies, when they saw the packages, they said, where's Julie? What's going on? Oh, she, it's my mom. She heard her back. Oh, tell Julie we said hello. Oh, she's, oh, how, how is she? She, you know, what happened? Like, she's, she's popular with the ladies down at the post office. I'll tell you that. So if you want a T-shirt, Give Julie a reason to go down to the post office and hang out with those ladies. It makes her happy. Okay, last thing. I did take a video of this conversation. So if you prefer to watch Stanley and me having this conversation in his room in the Hotel Marriott in downtown Oakland, uh, you can find that on my YouTube channel. Chris Ryan, I don't know, go to YouTube and Google Christopher Ryan or something. I know I have a channel. I don't know how it works, if there's a name for it or whatever. Find it, subscribe to it, and you'll see whatever videos I throw up there. So I will be uploading that while I'm here in this fancy hotel. Hopefully, it'll go up. And uh, so you'll find that there. If you're a Patreon viewer, I mean a Patreon supporter, I will send you a link to it and you'll get the uh, the video right through patreon i'm going to make this one available to everyone often i sort of make them only available to patreon supporters but you know stanley's a man of the people got to make him available to everybody so that video will be available by the time you hear this 
um, if you're interested in checking that out. All right, I'm going to play you out with a really beautiful song by uh, a guy who listens to this podcast, David Beckingham. He sent me... I don't even remember what the story is. I think he sent me a song a year or two ago, and I really liked it. I played it, and then I don't know if he sent me his new record, or I just saw that he has a new record. I don't know what the hell it is, but his name's David Beckingham, and I got this song. It's called Forest. It's really beautiful, and it expresses a kind of wisdom that um that stanley certainly represents for me so make sure you pay attention to the lyrics the music's beautiful but the the lyric also has a lot of uh, beauty contained in it so thank you everybody out there in the world still freaks me out that you're on the other end of this cable that i'm talking into uh but it's wonderful to know you're out there thanks for listening And uh, if you see me walking down the street, if you're in Portland or Bend or Burning Man, see me walking around, I'll be wearing a shirt and no pants. No, I won't. That's not me. I won't do that. There's a name for that. Shirt cocking, I think, is the name for it. You're not supposed to do that. Um, But yeah, if you see me, say hi. It's always nice to meet you folks. Take care. Catch you on the other side.
Great. So uh, they know that we're sitting here naked in your room in the Marriott Hotel. Everyone else is imagining us with clothes on. Well, it's a case of the emperor's new clothes. <laughs> and so, if it looks like we have clothes on, it's an optical illusion. It's an illusion. It's an illusion. So, Stanley, what are you doing here at the, at the Marriott? You're at a conference? No I'm other? attending a conference which is the annual meeting of the Institute of Noetic Sciences. And what is noetic? What does that mean? Noetic is a fancy word for consciousness. Ah. The reason they use noetics is because noetic starts with an N, and Institute of Noetic Sciences translates into ions. And it's simpler to ah. say, oh, I'm going to a meeting with ions, I rather see. I'm going to a meeting with or some other thing. <laughs> so the acronym preceded the name. Yes. Yeah, right. okay. I guess that probably happens a lot. People yes, come up yeah. with a good acronym. Noetics is a perfectly legitimate Greek word, and it, it <laughs> serves a purpose. Also, it links what's happening in inner space with what happens in outer space. And IONS was founded by Edgar Mitchell, the astronaut. Oh, right. Yeah, the eighth person to be on the moon. Right. And so this is a wonderful legacy for him that his organization is going so well. It has mm. branches literally all over the world. I did a workshop on dreams at their Tucson, Arizona branch. Mm. I was delighted that so many people turned out and that there was such a vibrant group. And... This is a conference and an organization that is rooted in a scientific way of approaching life and phenomena, but also it leads room for intuition. So the conferences have been pretty high-level stuff with not only scientists speaking, but also people from the arts and humanities bringing in the 
intuitive subjective side of consciousness studies. Hmm. So what are some other areas that, that fall under the rubric of what you're calling consciousness studies? Dreams, you've mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some other areas that people might be presenting work on? Well, this also gets into Saybrook University where I teach mm-hmm. because we have an emphasis on consciousness studies. We're probably the first legitimate accredited school in the country that organized a program on consciousness studies some 40 years ago. And it's a broad term, and consciousness studies includes the psychology of consciousness, and that means the neurosciences, it includes the uh, phenomenological study of consciousness, it includes the uh, cross-cultural aspects of consciousness, Mm But in addition to the psychology of consciousness, the word consciousness studies also covers the humanities, how consciousness informs creativity Hmm. and the arts, music, literature. Right. And also, there's a whole technological side, the technology of consciousness, virtual reality, for example. Right, right. Consciousness studies is a broad term with many, many branches. Have you experienced virtual reality? Have you experienced virtual reality? Oh, oh yes. I was uh, one of the first to experience virtual reality in its very rudimentary form. And now, of course, it's much more sophisticated, mm. much more complicated. And I think it's going to... Uh, be one of the ways of the future, not only for entertainment, but I'm interested, as you know, in post-traumatic stress disorder. Right. And there's a whole therapy with uh, veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder where they can relive the traumatizing event in Iraq or Afghanistan or wherever, and then re-experiencing it, they can interpret it in a different way and become desensitized to the cues that ordinarily drive them through the wall when they run into it in everyday life. Right. Fourth of July, the firecrackers sent right. dozens of uh, veterans on a spin because it reminded them of IED attacks in the Middle East. Um, somebody gives them an order, it reminds them of the time in the service where they were being given orders and they bristle and they rebel. Yeah, all of those things have to be worked through and dropped, and shall we say, a new personal myth has to be constructed Mm -hmm. that is looking for the post-traumatic strengths. Well, virtual reality can help with all of this uh, uh, therapy with Mm -hmm. veterans. And it's fairly cost-effective, and it doesn't have the unfortunate side effects that psychotropic drugs are having, which is the usual way that PTSD is treated in this country, unfortunately. Yeah, psycho- psychotropic drugs that are just meant to deaden the sensation. Yes. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I mention that because I just did a podcast uh, recently with um, an organization that is helping vets with uh, treatment-resistant PTSD to get um, ayahuasca uh, access and ayahuasca ceremonies. And apparently they're experience is very positive. Well, I hear this from uh, friends of mine in Peru and Brazil. Mm -hmm. Veterans who have given up on the drug treatment, 
go to ayahuasca ceremonies in Brazil, Peru, Ecuador, and let a shaman or one of the ayahuasca churches lead them through the experience and this helps them put the experience into a new framework and probably starts to reorganize the brain as well because mm. ayahuasca also is a drug it's also a psychoactive chemical right but it's one that's shall we say restorative rather than deadening right right exactly i uh i mentioned earlier I just came from Santa Cruz, where I was with your old friend Jim Fadiman. Yes. <clears throat> Had a great conversation with him, and I noticed in his, we were at, he has a, a little apartment right on the beach, which I guess is his sort of writing retreat. And um, there on the wall was a big poster with you on the poster and him and uh, some, I can't remember some other people from Saybrook. It was a conference in Puebla, I think. Uh, oh, yes. A few years ago. Yes, that was very recent. Jim was uh, one of our speakers at the annual Transpersonal Psychology Conference in right. Puebla, Mexico. Right. Another one is coming up in October, as a matter of fact. Uh, do you go every year to that? I go every year. I'm sort of the interlocutor, the master of ceremonies. And I always introduce everybody in Spanish. Ah, uh, yeah. Because most of their speakers are gringos from North America. Right. And I say, you know, where are the Latinos? Where are the people of color? The best I can do is to uh, put some Spanish into the proceedings <laughs> and make a link between the audience and the speakers that way. Yeah, yeah. Um, consciousness, getting back to consciousness. Because I know you're you're one of the world's reigning experts on the field of consciousness, and I feel like I don't maybe even really know what consciousness is. Do you mentioned transcultural perspectives on consciousness? It it seems to me that in the West we think of consciousness as an aspect of the brain, right? Yes. Um, do other cultures see it that way, or do other cultures see it? I mean, saying it, it's weird to say it because it feels like the eye is talking about vision somehow. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, yeah. without consciousness, mm -hmm. this conversation would be impossible. I would I exist without consciousness? Do you exist without consciousness? How do you define consciousness? Everybody defines consciousness in a different way. There is no, simply no standard explanation or definition of consciousness. Mm, okay. Recently, three friends of mine collaborated on a book called What is Consciousness? Uh, Larry Dossey, Gene Houston, and Irving Laszlo. Mm. And they asked me to write the introduction. Three heavy hitters. Uh, three famous people. I, oh, yes. I know three all of them. Very famous yeah. people, yeah. and all of them wrote brilliant chapters. So I did a riff on the old story of the blind man and the elephant. Right. Where each of the blind men felt a different aspect of the elephant and described the elephant in different ways. And so I had the blind men representing the Freudian point of view, the Jungian point of view, the neuroscientific point of view, etc., etc., etc. Right, And I said that uh, people 
latch on to a certain aspect of consciousness and they think that they have understood everything about it. Mm. But consciousness studies are really what we call a transdisciplinary area because they cross disciplines. Not only do they cross disciplines, that's cross-cultural, and uh, they, they pull together things into a new discipline. So mm. consciousness studies is very demanding. You have to know everything from cultures to neuroscience. Right. Now, let me get back to your question. I tend to use the word consciousness as rarely as possible because <laughs> it means so many different things to right. different people. Right. I prefer to use such words as perception, intuition. I like such words as, uh, as, um, as uh, emotion. Mm -hmm. That's a part of consciousness. Uh, reasoning. I try to be a little bit more specific in terms of uh, the way that I use the term or people will not know what I'm talking about. Or I simply say for the purposes of this paper, for this talk, I will define consciousness as a pattern of thinking, feeling, and intention that is manifested by not only humans, but by many other forms of life as well. You anticipated my next question. I, I was, I was going to ask you if consciousness was taken to be a uniquely human uh, experience, but apparently not. Well, <clears throat> there are some people in this field who have turned the whole thing on its head. Say, no, consciousness does not come from the brain. The brain comes from consciousness. Mm -hmm. Consciousness is fundamental. Consciousness is fundamental in the universe. Aren't there some physicists who are arguing that consciousness is sort of an elemental principle of the universe? Yeah, there are, you go back 100 years, there are actually 10 major physicists who have said this. Wolfgang mm -hmm. Pauli is perhaps the best, Erwin Schrodinger said this. And if you start out with consciousness as being fundamental, then everything really falls into place. One of the speakers at this IONS conference is Julia Mossbridge, and she and the collaborator have written a book called Transcendent Mind, and it takes the point of view that consciousness is basically fundamental, and believe it or not, their book was published by the American Psychological Association. Mm. Very, very radical book. And I'll be eager to read the reviews and find out what other people think about this. Yeah. And even we're reducing uh, the discussion when we talk about consciousness being associated with the brain. My understanding is that recent research has shown that the gut is actually very important. Oh, in the good heavens. I've been making this point for decades. We have three brains the brain in the head, the brain in the heart, the brain in the gut. All of these what about the brain in my dick, Stanley? You can include that too. <laughs> <laughs> all of these have nerve cells and all of these have neurotransmitters. All yeah. of these have endorphins. So we've got to get away from the position that the brain emanates consciousness. For one thing, if consciousness is fundamental, that comes through. I think we have consciousness throughout the whole body. Right but primarily in the brain, the butt, and the heart. And 
Then you look at other forms of <laughs> the life. The brain, the gut, and the heart. Yes. You said the butt. <laughs> Freudian slip. There's a good example. You're talking about the dick. I was talking I about the butt. <laughs> there you go. Well, good heavens, let's face it. Some people have periods of time in their life where their consciousness is focused on, That's the, where it on is. the dick and the butt. That's where it is. Absolutely. <laughs> More often than they would like to admit. That's true. I think that consciousness can be manifested in any form of life that has nerve cells. Hmm. And this means we go not only to, shall we say, the mammals who have a nervous system, especially the apes, even the dolphins, sure. the whales. Wait, but, I was reading about crows recently. They're oh, crows very are intelligent. Crows yeah. are very intelligent creatures. Planning, they, they, they practice deception, they, yeah. they're, they're, they seem to have, a, what's it called, the sense of the other? The, there's a psychological term for this, where you realize that other people are conscious beings. Right. Um, yeah, they're, uh, yeah, fascinating. Anyway, I interrupted you. It's no so, wonder that the shamans <clears throat> in North America looked at the crow as a very important power animal because right. they knew that the crows were very intelligent. Yeah. yeah. Um, there is a pioneering book by a friend of mine, Ted Barber, called The Human Nature of Birds. Mm. And some 20, 25 years ago, he came out with this radical idea that uh, birds manifest consciousness, that they have personalities, they have communications, they can make plans. That book sold out immediately, and it's hard to get a copy because it's not reprinted. Really? Yeah, but he was way ahead of the huh. way ahead of his time. And then he wrote a book um, extending consciousness to other forms of life, and then he died of a brain embolism. Mm. And now the book is sitting there, and I'm trying desperately to find some way, after all these years, to get it on the web or get it privately printed. Uh, his longtime companion and I have edited it and have put things together as best we could, but uh, there are so many copyright problems we are having, having difficulty. Uh. However, however, it doesn't matter because um, the no notion intelligence in nature has been taken up by many, many other other writers. Jeremy Narby, N-A-R-B-Y, sure. wrote an excellent book on this topic, which, again, ahead of its time, but your listeners might look up that book on the internet, and he found intelligence not only in animals and birds, but in plants. In the well, whole yeah. nature. Well, and now there's a whole <laughs> school of thought saying, you know, the paramecium doesn't have any nerve cells, but the paramecium behaves in ways that look pretty intelligent. Yeah. Okay, all of this is underscoring the hypothesis that kind of consciousness is basic, intention is basic, that the whole universe is some sort of organism that behaves in an intelligent, coordinated way. Many people, traditionally in the Western societies, look at God as being something above and beyond. Mm -hmm. I think a better case can be made that God is within and below, and that uh, we've been not only looking for consciousness in the wrong place, we've been looking for God in the wrong place. 
So God is this fundamental fabric of the universe where everything is interwoven and intention is 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 part of the fabric of being itself. Is, yes, exactly. So if the universe is functioning as an organism, because this is something I've been thinking about recently, the sort of um, how life is made of other life and and how it seems you can start with inorganic matter and then there was some lightning strike or spores came from the you know cosmic travelers or no one really knows but then there's single cellular life and then there's multicellular life and then you get to more complex multicellular life and then you get to um social organisms and then you sort of rise up this ladder and I don't mean to be directional about it, one's better than the other or whatever, but it seems to be increasing complexity. And then, arguably, you get to humans being the most complex social beings, although ants might have something different to say about that. But then there's no reason to think it stops there. So what I've been thinking is, okay, then each level of, of life is made of simpler levels within it, mm-hmm even as you and I are, are made of the, the microbes in our gut and our skin and uh, the parts of our, um, our being that don't even share our DNA, mm-hmm. without which we couldn't exist. So what is it that we are embedded within? What is the life form that's above the one we're most conscious of, right? And so to me, it seems to be institutions, Mm-hmm. religions, governments, corporations, they seem to be <clears throat> living things that are, <clears throat> excuse me, functioning on their own agendas that often have nothing to do with ours. I think that that's a <clears throat> very reasonable assumption, and you hit on an important point. Just because things are more complex doesn't mean that they're better than the other. Yeah. And I think this particularly applies to institutions. Yes, you go up the scale, you're right. Human beings are working together, and you have organizations. You even have this controversial um, Supreme Court decision that corporations are people. They have, have religious the rights. rights yeah. Well, <clears throat> I think that's a good example complex is not necessarily better. Well, now, is that a decision that is sort of forced by the power of corporations? That because they've become so powerful, that they are, for a long time now, they they have been shaping human society to their benefit and to the detriment of human beings. So, if, to take the example you gave, they have religious rights, they have freedom of speech. These are actually articulated by the Supreme Court, but you can't throw a corporation in prison, mm-hmm. right? right. Uh, a corporation can uh, uh, dissolve and disappear, and those assets can arise in another corporation, thereby shirking all responsibility for whatever pollution they've caused or damage they've done to human beings. So they actually have adjusted the the playing field in a way that gives them huge advantages over us as organisms. Mm-hmm. So so this idea 
that the universe is an organism and that there there are different sort of uh, levels of organisms embedded within it feels on the universal level like a beneficial, like, you know, all life is interconnected, we're all one, one of those sort of hippie enlightenment uh, moments. But when we get to the corporate level, it feels very pernicious. It feels dangerous and toxic. I would compare this to an organism that is functioning pretty well, and then there's a stroke, there's a heart attack, there's cancer. Tumor, yeah. It's yeah. a tumor. It's an out-of-control growth. Out-of-control growth. That's right. Hmm. So, again, uh, we can't take a simplistic look on this wonderful evolutionary development yeah. because there are bound to be glitches and pathologies within that development that then we have to summon the power and the intention to correct and turn around do you think you're how old are you 84 yes so 84 years of of perspective where how do you see our current historical moment are you hopeful or does this look like a shitstorm to you too i wish i could say that i was hopeful i would say that we we're at a point where we could go either way I think that there are wonderful possibilities, especially in terms of the marvelous technologies we have. I think it's exciting that there is so much wind power and solar power that are reducing the need for fossil fuels mm -hmm. and pollution. I think that uh, technologies are putting people in touch with each other more than ever before. I think that social networks are bringing together uh, people for constructive purposes. But then on the other hand, these technologies are being used by forces of destruction. And I'm not only referring to the terrorists in the Middle East, I'm talking about the destruction of unbridled corporations and capitalistic power. Yeah. So. And both of these forces, of all of these forces of destruction, are inimical to nature. They are devastating to the environment. They're devastating to the climate. No matter how many people deny it, uh, climate change is a reality. And I think that we can go either way. We can have the forces of destruction um, tilt to the destruction of our society, or can we have, shall we say, the forces of enlightenment and positive values tip us in the other way? I think we are really at what uh, is often called the tipping point. Mm. Who, knows, who knows what will happen? Also, there's an irony here. We have to curb the population growth if we're going to survive and be sustainable. And many, many countries now have zero population growth or manageable population growth, but the countries who are having unbridled population growth, who are against birth control, who are against family planning, are the very countries and the very religions that breed the destruction of the environment, that breed terrorism, that breed uh, control, that breed war, and their population is growing faster 
than the other populations. So there's a whole population issue here, too, that has to be taken into the equation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to be fair, uh, a lot of the environmental destruction and war that plague the planet right now comes from the United States, which has which is in growing population very quickly, right. or Japan. So it's it's not just the the sort of um, poor Middle Eastern countries, but you're right that they have their population explosion is is um, very problematic because there aren't more resources, and so you end up with these angry, desperate people. Um, I I I sort of see one of the keys to getting out of this mess that we're in as uh, being a guaranteed minimum basic income globally. Uh, I think if if we could institute something along those lines, which would cost much less than what we're doing now, so that there's no question whether the the money is there. One of the reasons population is growing so quickly in those countries, as you know, is that the only form of economic uh, support that people can look to when they're old is having lots of kids who will take care of them. And half those kids won't survive to adulthood. So you've got to have nine or ten kids to have three or four who can take care of you. If we could guarantee a minimum basic income to everyone on the planet, then that uh, motivation would be removed. I think that this is a consummation devoutly to be wished. <laughs> yes, a guaranteed annual wage yeah. really should start, uh, probably has to start at the local level. Yeah. And many of your listeners will not know this or remember it, but Richard Nixon was toying around with the idea of a guaranteed annual wage. Yeah. And his economic advisor, Daniel Monahan, had everything set in place. Hmm. And then, of course, the Nixon regime imploded, and we haven't heard of that seriously again. But a lot of um, a lot of penetrating thought has been given into hmm. this. You have a guaranteed annual wage, and you will eliminate uh, hunger, you will make a dent in disease, you will make a dent in housing problems, right. and as a result, the people who go to war because don't have anything else to do, or who subscribe to radical religions because they promise them pie in the sky when they die, uh, those religions won't have as much uh, as much power or as much uh, uh, emphasis as they do at the present time. Yeah. Do you feel you were you were well into adulthood in the 60s you were teaching in universities you were at Kent State I know for a while you did you go to Woodstock or you didn't you I remember there was oh, yes. some story about yes. Woodstock Yes you took one of your your kids to Woodstock right Oh I took both of them and both my wife them. to Woodstock oh, Okay right, right. Mm-hmm. So you you lived through that moment and you were very conscious of it I was alive but you know 8 or 10 or whatever um, th- this time feels to me like like whatever the wave was that was washing into American culture at the time and then crested and then washed back out in Hunter Thompson's famous rendition of the, the period. It feels like that wave has come back now. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the interest in, in psychedelics, 
uh, alternative energy, um, sort of intense interest in, in women's rights and, and LGBT rights and um, the sort of conscious uh, attention being paid to forms of oppression and um, it feels to me like sort of a second surge of that energy. Mm -hmm. Does it feel that way to you or is that just oh, yes. my framing of it? Yes, at this conference, the Institute of Nordic Sciences conference I'm at, uh, there are a lot of young enthusiastic people who see that uh, this is their chance to organize, work for the environment, work for um, harmony among people, work for peace on the planet, very, very idealistic. But I think the difference is that this group is much more practical. And is that because we have this historical precedent of the 60s and we can see the mistakes that were made, things that were pushed too far, things that were unrealistic? For example, I was just in North Carolina um, at a, a community there of just beautiful, wonderful people who are um, trying to create a village. And they've got a couple of guys from Africa who grew up in villages and they, they're village consultants. They're sort of like helping them uh, plant the seeds of village life, how to take care of each other, how to share resources and all these things. And they, they jokingly refer to it as an unintentional community. Um, and, you know, I'm looking at the way they do it. They own the land independently. Each one owns their own house. Um, but they share some things, uh, you know, sort of how children are raised and what kind of sexual um, interactions are, are cool or not cool. And, all this. and I, I just sort of it struck me as people trying to do the same things that a lot of people were doing in the 60s with so-called communes, but much more cautious because they've seen what has happened in communes, right? Where one ego gets out of control and it becomes a guru situation or whatever. Anyway, my, my point is just that it feels like this movement is, maybe it's a stronger wave you know what I mean? Maybe yeah. the, the 60s wave was kind of top-heavy because it was the first time there was a lot of excitement. We're going to change the world. Everything, the Earth Day is going to save the planet. And now we're trying to do it again, but informed by just how hard it really is. Well, I think that you see it very clearly. I was living through the 60s. I actually wrote some papers on communes because I visited many of the communes. Mm. And... I could see very clearly how fragile the, com the communes were because they depended too much on the vision of one person. Mm. There was not the ground rules that were enforced, and they were not sustainable. The ones that were sustainable, some of them still exist in one form or another. But by sustainable, I mean, you know, growing your own crops, having people right. getting jobs in the larger community. Uh, coming together and sharing resources and also having, shall we say, rules of behavior that prevent um, romantic entanglements and sexual encounters from getting out of hand. Right. I think that the group that you've just been talking about learned from those mistakes and they have a better chance of being in there for the long haul. Yeah. And little groups like that starting at the 
uh, bottom can have major repercussions on the top. I want to recommend to your listeners Stephen Schwartz's book, The Eight Laws of Change. Mm -hmm. And he demonstrates how very small groups of people can make major changes in their community and in the world at large. And that when you look at the changes that have been made over the last century, the beneficial changes, almost all of them have been nonviolent. Mm. They have not been due to war, they have not been to dictators, they have been groups of people, sometimes very small groups of people, cooperating and making a major change. The abolition of slavery for one. Mm -hmm. That was not a mass movement. That was due to very small groups of people that fought very, very hard and eventually were able to topple slavery. And of course it led to the Civil War and the unfortunate aftermath of the Civil War set things back and had to wait until the uh, 20th century to get things back in balance again. But the seesaw effect is something that you run into a lot when you go into politics. And again, remember that, uh, as the old saying goes, all politics is local. The politics start at the bottom, and then if you've got something good going for you, they're going to disseminate and they're going to reach the top. Mm. Um, you know, I, I recently was reading about this sort of birth of, of corporate, or the corporate organism in American law. And it was very interesting that the corporation arose out of the, I think it was the 13th Amendment, which outlawed slavery, yeah. um, because the amendment basically argues, in, in a way, it's slaves were property. Mm -hmm. And so I may, be, I may be conflating this or getting this not quite right. But as I remember it, the amendment argues that, okay, this property, these slaves, now has rights. Human rights, and so in trying to build a bridge where slaves went from being property to being human beings, lawyers and other opportunists use that bridge to go the other direction and say, "Okay, then now property is human, right now there's this bridge between so property sort of almost inanimate material was considered to be one realm and the human realm is another and the 13th amendment built a connection between those two by saying oh wait this property is actually human and then that was used to say well then property if property can have human attributes then this company can have rights this company can exist as a being that should be treated legally as a human being it's crazy. But anyway, so the, that whole corporate monster came out of the 13th Amendment, oh, is my well, understanding. It not only came out of the 13th Amendment, it came out of uh, the whole notion of freedom of speech, which was taken to an extreme. Right. It came out of many legal precedents. Um, again, I think that uh, the whole notion that slaves were property is something that represents a something very, very basic that for better or for worse, 
people in the West like property, and property is a basic right to them. Right. You contrast that with a lot of indigenous societies. No, people do not own the land. Right. People live on the land and cooperate with the land. Right. When the Europeans came to North and South America and wanted to buy land, the Native Americans were saying, well, we don't own the land. We can't sell it to you. Right. And so there was not an exact meeting of the mind. Well, the Europeans just took the land and right. ran. If it doesn't own to you. If it doesn't belong to you, then it belongs to me. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can remember some of those uh, transcripts of some of those conversations where the Indian said, well, do you want then to, uh, to buy the sky as well? Mm-hmm. You know, how can, how can we sell you the land where our ancestors are buried? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, another thing that made no sense was when they said, you know, take us to your chief. Most of these indigenous people don't even, don't have a hierarchical political system, so there is no chief. You know, there's someone who's respected for his or her opinions on where to find more game, and other people, if there's a conflict, like, well, he, he's good at fighting, so let's listen to him, but there's no sort of chief structure, you know. No, there was a, commu- again, you can't, say this <coughs> was true of all Native American tribes because there were about a thousand of them when the yeah. Europeans arrived. Yeah. But by and large, elders were making the decisions. Yeah. The shamans, the medicine men, the medicine women were in charge of the sacred or spiritual aspects. And then they had a council of elders who were in charge of protecting the community, making decisions that... Uh, affected the community, but also, again, one thing that many people miss out on is that women played a very, very important role. Right. Not only as shamans or medicine people, but as elders. And sometimes everything had to be run through the community of elder women before right. it was affected. Was it the Iroquois who had the two, the, the, the bicameral system where the men sat in a circle arguing uh, about war and where to plant the next season and the, and the men would come to a decision but sitting around the men were the women yes. mm-hmm. the, the elder women and the women didn't participate in the, the debate but they had to ratify whatever decision the men had come to yeah, oh yes that's, that's <clears throat> and I think true. Benjamin Franklin and of course the Iroquois were part of the Seven Nation Confederation, which Benjamin Franklin visited. Right. And you can make the case that this laid the basis for the United States Constitution right. and the bicameral legislature. Uh, exactly. I've, I've read that case being made. Um, getting back to consciousness, have you ever done a float tank uh, yes. experience? Yes. Uh, have you a, a modern one, or I know you knew John Lilly. Did yes. I mean how far back was your last float tank experience? Actually, in Germany, with a very sophisticated float tank. Ah, okay. So you've been in the modern renditions. Yes, John Lilly gave an invited talk to the Parapsychological Association many, many decades ago, and he was saying that the parapsychologists had used the flotation tank in ESP experiments, Mm. studying extrasensory perception. (laughs) At that time, nobody really had the money to buy a flotation tank. Yeah. (coughs) 
but this year's Parapsychological Association meeting <coughs> in Europe gave the first report about using a flotation tank for people who tried to pick up messages from outside the flotation tank mm. and got some promising results. Really? So mm. aside from everything else, the flotation tank might be conducive to uh, psychic messaging. So that, that sort of ties into the research you were doing at the sleep lab, lab at uh, Maimonides where you were looking at hypnopompic states or hyp yeah. hypnagogic states, I, I forget which or maybe both, as being particularly receptive to uh, extrasensory input. So do you think that, do people enter uh, a state of consciousness in flow tanks that's similar to hypnopompic or hypnagogic? Well, I think that you hit something very important. Decades ago in our research at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York, we were engaged in a study that actually lasted for 10 years where people would go off to a distant room, would try to dream about a picture that was randomly selected by one of our experimenters who went to another distant room. And then we would monitor the dreams of the people in the first distant room. And more often than not, there was a match between the dreams and the picture. Right. Now, we also got the information what images they had as they were drifting into sleep, what images they had when they were coming out of sleep. As you said, this is the hypnagogic and hypnopompic uh, domains of consciousness. And that even had more correspondences to the target picture than the dreams themselves. Mm. So this is very similar to what you get in terms of the imagery from a flotation tank. Yeah, because my experience with flotation tanks is at the end of the experience when the light starts to come up and the music starts to play, I, I feel that I'm waking up, I'm coming back to consciousness. But um, it, it doesn't feel that I've been asleep. Oh, no. So I'm coming back home, but I wasn't in the place that I normally am. Oh, good heavens, if you fell asleep, you'd sink, you'd drown, you'd swallow water. No, no, you're very <laughs> alert when you're in a flotation tank. Well, you wouldn't sink because of the salinity. That's true. Or, you know? I mean, I, I sort of drift in and out of consciousness. But So so sticking with the, the, the consciousness, by the way, I should mention to people, it's like 8 o'clock in the morning and we, neither one of us have had any breakfast or coffee. So we're not going to go on forever. I figure another... 10 or 15 minutes Fine. and we'll go down and get some breakfast. Um, uh, what was I going to say? Oh, so th this whole question of consciousness and what is it and does it permeate the universe and, and are, you know, does the brain receive it or create it and all these things. Uh, how now, did, let me just interrupt. Yeah, yes. Um, so that the people who turned in late know what I'm getting at. I try not to use the word consciousness too often because right. it's defined in so many different ways. So often defined consciousness, I say consciousness is an English language word that refers to a pattern or a mosaic of thoughts, feelings, sensations, intentions. Right. It's sort of like an umbrella 
that covers a lot of different uh, right. human functions, cognitive as well as affective, uh, planning as well as unconscious motivation. So how does this relate to, to death? Do you believe that this the aspects of what this umbrella term that we're calling consciousness um, persist beyond death, transcend death, or do you think that you, you said earlier that you thought that, that these phenomena could relate to organisms that have nerve cells. So when the nerve cells stop functioning, does the whole picture go black? What, what do you think? Do you have any, any conjecture on these things? You know, it's so interesting that the survival of human consciousness after death is suddenly become hot stuff in the journals. Mm. And it's being discussed, both <clears throat> pro and con, it's being taken seriously as a research topic. And I'm delighted because these are, you know, essential questions that we have. And I can tell you about my contribution to this debate very briefly. If your readers want to, if your listeners want to do some reading, I have an article this year in the Journal of the British Society for Psychical Research. But a few years ago, a woman in Virginia who was an events planner for the U.S. Army wrote me and she says, I've been getting these dreams from deceased soldiers and I have a friend who's a chaplain and I've taken the dreams to him and he says, oh yes, I served with that soldier in Afghanistan or in Iraq. And so I said, look, let's take each one of these dreams and you go to your chaplain friend and let's pin it down just what proof does he have that he actually knew these people. So the dreams that she had have information in them that can be traced fortunately. Sometimes very specific names, first name or last name. Sometimes the insignia that they were wearing. Sometimes the location. And the chaplain would say, yes, I knew him and he was killed in Iraq or Afghanistan. And you might think, or your listeners might think, well, he was just making that up to make her happy. This is all a hoax. This is all something that is a fantasy. But she had some dreams about people that he didn't know. Mm. And they would go to the army registrar and they would find out Yes, that person with that name was killed in the same place that uh, the dream said he was killed. And there was even a woman in the mix, so it was not all them. We got a collection of 10 dreams before the chaplain was transferred overseas. And so those 10 dreams we have now analyzed and we have uh, cited the evidence behind them and so the readers can make their own judgment. We've also talked about the other scenarios. Is it coincidence? Is it some sort of extrasensory perception? Is it fraud? Um, but at least this is my contribution to the ongoing debate. Hmm. 
You know, to me, the most interesting <coughs> thing about people with near-death experiences or people that uh, speak through mediums from the beyond is that their description of the beyond doesn't match that of organized religions. Yeah. Yeah, the organized religions are very narrow. They exclude a lot of people. They simply don't have it right if we're to believe the testimony of the people who have come through mediums, who have come through dreams, or the people who have medically died but have come back uh, to live again. Is there, is there consistency in those reports? There is, shall we say, a broad consistency. Much of it is culturally determined. Right. But even what is culturally determined doesn't really follow the <clears throat> religion of that culture. Mm. Yeah, you don't have the people playing harps up in the sky. You don't have the <laughs> virgins awaiting the deceased. You don't have any of these stereotypical uh, um, patterns of uh, life after death. So what, what is reported? What, what do you see as the consistencies? There is, shall we say, a repository of what some people call bliss, a universal consciousness that people are happy in, and they lose their individuality. Uh -huh. However, they can emerge from that when the occasion demands, like when they want, need to warn a loved one back on Earth, and they do this in a dream, and then they bounce back into their bliss. Or those that are cooperative with scientists can come through a medium simply because they want to assure people that uh, death is nothing to fear, that there is going to be something uh, in the beyond that is pleasant and happy. But then you also have these puzzling cases where the people that come back say, oh, I went through a rough time, a very terrible time, before I reached this bliss. And so everything is not all, uh, shall we say, bread and roses. Mm. There's also some difficulty involved and sometimes some work that a person has to do. Um, I had a dream the other night about a very, very close friend of mine who passed over recently. <coughs> and again, making no great claims for this, but she said, I've been trying to get through to you, but you know, to come back to Earth, it's very, very difficult. It's not easy. And that's why most of us are just happy to stay on the other side and wait for our loved ones to join us. Mm. Yeah, here I am, and I wanted to show you that uh, uh, I survived death. But you see these scars on my face. You see the uh, bruises on my body because she looked pretty much as she did in waking life. This is to show, tell you that it's really difficult to come through. Mm. And so people shouldn't uh, really demand anything from us. If we can come through easily, we will, but uh, it's not a simple task for us. Mm. So that was sort of illustrious to me. When I was in Brazil, I was <clears throat> leading a tour group and one woman was paying a medium in England a lot of money to communicate with her deceased son who died at a fairly early age from a tragic automobile accident. And 
somebody that she thought was her son was coming through and she was paying for it. Well, a Brazilian medium worked with her and we actually did this on the roof of our hotel. And he made contact with her alleged son and the son said, please have my mother stop talking to that medium. That medium demands that I come through and it's really very hard for me. I'm doing interesting things on the other side and please just leave me alone so I can continue my development and mm. enjoy life on the other side. And at that moment a shooting star came out of the sky mm. as if to say this is valid. Okay, well that woman gave up giving money to the medium and that settled the whole case for her. It's a good message. I, I uh, was speaking to a woman recently who was um, raised as a Mormon. She was on the podcast. Her name's Sarah, if people want to go back to the archives. Uh, beautiful woman, Sarah Larson. She was raised as a Mormon, but very curious, very sort of uh, inquisitive mind, you know, trying to understand things. And as often happens b with people being raised in religious traditions, the more she matured and thought things through, the less sense it all made. And she had a sort of a cathartic moment where she experienced what from the outside looked like a psychotic episode. Uh, she was driving in the car, she was laughing and crying and, and couldn't stop and had to pull the car over and just, just this explosion of emotion. And, um, I asked her, what, what was it? What happened? She said she heard the voice of God. And what God said to her was that religion is bullshit. <laughs> Which, when you think about it, is exactly what God would say. It is. Yeah. You know, if a legitimate medium would say, hey, stop spending money uh, you know on this the silliness like l let it go right. yeah <laughs> so oh i love that story yeah yeah, yeah. god yeah. told me that religion is bullshit well that's coming straight from the source right that there. sounds to me like the voice of god <laughs> it does what your contact was engaging in is sometimes called a spiritual emergency where mm. mainstream psychiatry would say, well, this is psychotic, she's hearing voices, she's having yeah. delusion. Yeah. But a spiritual emergency can lead to a spiritual emergence. That's what happened with A higher level of yeah. understanding. And yeah. I think that uh, many people are being given drugs and medication for spiritual emergencies when they should be guided through those emergencies right. and see, okay, what value is there of this and how can this raise the understanding of the spirit to a higher level? Then that's a spiritual emergence. It's as if we're, we're giving uh, uh, sort of sedatives to a woman who's trying to give birth to stop this traumatic process. <laughs> good, good, good comparison, yeah. You know, it's like we're, we're trying to stop a birth here. That's crazy. Yeah. It, it's, mm -hmm. That's not what we need to be doing. You know, when you were talking about the, the sense of consciousness and the sort of ego disillusion, my, when I think about life and death in these cosmic terms, I imagine a life as like a falling raindrop. And there's, 
you know, some last longer than others. Some fall and hit the mountain. Some fall all the way to the ocean. And in any case, the end of the life is the end of the trajectory of that raindrop. But the water doesn't disappear. The water rejoins the ocean eventually. And maybe the people who say, oh, I went through a really hard time, they're the ones who landed on the mountainside and had to go down through the dirt into the aquifer and down the river and out into the ocean. Others just land, boom, right in the ocean and everything's wonderful. And there's that sense of mergence, not emergence, but mergence back into the the body of uh, from which we all come and from which we all return. I know well, that's I think that's a beautiful metaphor, and it's very similar to uh, the metaphor I sometimes use. Except yours is better. I'm going to use yours from now on. And my metaphor is: imagine a wave, <clears throat> and the wave has little drops of water coming out from it and then the water falls down into the ocean. And from the time that the drop stops and merges, that's human life. That's your lifetime, yeah. But then, seeing it's in the ocean, sometimes the drop comes up again and says, mm. hello, here I am again. Yeah. And that's what we get in people who come through mediums or come in dreams, but eventually they drop down again. Or, or Ian Stevenson's work with reincarnation. Sometimes they go through another life, another drop, yes. Yeah, yeah. There was a report given at this conference, which was absolutely fascinating. A young boy, from his earliest ages, he's been interested in aviation. And eventually he came up with very specific information about how he was uh, shot down during the Second World War. He gave some specific names. His parents resisted all of this, but fortunately they ended up with a reputable parapsychologist who helped them trace all of this material down, and sure enough, this was all validated. And um, from the age of three, when he started drawing airplanes and started coming up with specific places where he had been shot down, mm to the present time, he's now content with this, and of all things, he has joined the Navy. He's going to be a naval aviator mm. and sort of complete that cycle, complete what he thinks is his destiny. Yeah. Stanley, thank you. I, I know we're, you gave up uh, your breakfast to do this. I, we'll, we'll still get some Food breakfast. Food for the soul. Food for the soul. <laughs> I am always uh, grateful when you make time to do this. And, and, and remember, the listeners yeah. who are interested in higher education, you can study all of these topics at Saybrook University. <laughs> get in a plug for Saybrook. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Uh, where I went, and uh, you have been teaching forever. I said, when uh, I saw the poster in Jim Fadiman's place, I said, oh, Stanley was my mentor at Saybrook. And he said, Stanley is everyone's mentor at Saybrook. <laughs> That's true. Uh, and I'm going uh, today, I'm driving up to Mendocino to do a podcast with Tim Scully. And who, I just saw Tim a month ago. At the MAPS Tim was thing. one of our Saybrook graduates. That's right. You, he got a degree while he was in prison, while is that right? While he was in prison, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I'll be, uh, tomorrow morning, I'll be uh, sitting down with him. Oh, your listeners have to hear that story, because Tim has a great story to tell, 
And, you know, he was one of these idealists from the 1960s who went mm -hmm. out to save the world yeah. by manufacturing LSD. He paid a heavy price for that. Indeed he did. And um, his intentions were pure, but the judge said, you're an idealist. The idealists are the most dangerous people around. <laughs> and he threw the book at Tim. Yeah. And Tim went to jail, and it took the <coughs> efforts of so many of us <clears throat> writing letters, and then former Attorney General Clark actually came in and gave a push to get him an early parole. Mm. That's part of the unknown story, but he'll be happy to tell you yeah, about that. Good. I look forward to that. All right, let's go get some breakfast. Thank you, Stanley. You are welcome. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Thank you to everybody who supports the podcast through Patreon.com. You can decide how much you want to give the podcast, a buck a month, five bucks a month, ten bucks a month, or you can get completely crazy and give 20 bucks a month or more. Or you can give nothing. If you don't have any cash, don't worry about it. Just enjoy the podcast and tell your friends. Thank you to Basin and Range for that opening music at the beginning of the podcast. Very funky little tune there uh, called The Bright Side of the Sun, I believe. You can find out more about them at basinandrangeband.com. If you want to talk about the podcast with other listeners, a good place to do that is on Reddit. Just search Tangentially Speaking, all one word. There's a community of a couple hundred people in there chatting about the episodes. I drop in occasionally and say hello, answer questions, whatever. Uh, thanks to Shore Design T-shirts. Our garage is full of them. My mom has them all organized as only she can. Julie, thank you to Julie, my mom. She'll send those t-shirts out to you if you order them. Everything we've got in stock is from Shore Design T-shirts in Thailand, and you can check out their webpage as well for other designs. Thank you to Carsey Blanton. You can find out more about Carsey Blanton at CarseyBlanton.com. C-A-R-S-I-E-B-L-A-N-T-O-N.com. She wrote and performed the song you're about to hear, which is called Smoke Alarm. And it's a reminder to carpe fucking diem while you still can, because, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to die one day. Here's to you, Bennett. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say Running from a confrontation 
a big deal if you wanna be free. Say what you wanna feel. Spend the night with me. I'm gonna take you up in my arms, and if we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms. We'll dance into the ground.